0: If you've fallen out of love with your imperfect family, then perhaps Carl Capitorto can help. The playwright and actor has written a memoir about growing up in the Bronx in the 1960s and 70s that helps to remind us that families are supposed to drive us crazy. Good morning. I'm George Bolarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Carl's with us this morning to talk about his new book. It's called Twisted Head, an Italian-American memoir. Good morning, Carl. How are you? Thanks for having me. The literal translation of your last name, Mm -hmm. Torto, from Italian to English, is twisted head. Right, right. Capo, torto. Capo, head, torto, twisted, yeah. Where exactly did you grow up in the Bronx?
1: I grew up very close to here, Pelham Parkway and White Plains Road. We lived in a building for uh, like a one-bedroom apartment in a big old building right near the L, right? In fact, the elevated tracks of the number two train were right outside our windows, uh, and then we moved into this big old
0: house about a block away. But very all very close to here. We all know that when you live in an apartment building, you sometimes hear your neighbors. Yeah. And you did hear your neighbors. You used to hear one of your neighbors beating up his wife yeah. through the living room wall. And you write in the book that you anguished over the suffering of your neighbors. Yeah, That's a pretty... Big thing for a kid. Yeah, I don't know why that was. You know, I always had this sort of melancholy that would
1: come over me, just sort of absorbing the drama of these people's lives. I don't know. Maybe... Because it was absent from their day-to-day dealings, you know, you'd run into them and they were cheerful and, you know, give you a little candy or whatever you do with a kid. And and then I would hear through the walls what was going on in many of these apartments. And I think that the tension between those two things, you know, what they seemed to be out in the world and everything seemed to be okay, and what I knew was going on in their homes, it just upset me. It made me sad. It just made me sad. And I, I I remember obsessing about this as a kid.
0: Yeah, it seemed interesting to me to hear this come from a kid's voice. that yeah. used to pray for these people at night. Yeah, you know, they
1: taught us to pray. You do your nightly prayers and you send blessings to your family. And and then I just started extending it to everyone who I saw around me who I was clearly suffering, you know. And as a kid, of course, you're hopeless to do anything about it. I mean, helpless to do anything about it. And Prayer was a way to maybe get active. I, hate, I just hated seeing this stuff. I don't know if all kids go through this. or I know that I was a bit of a sponge. I do know that. And even into adult life, I remained a bit of a sponge. And I've had to learn. I still have to learn how to put up certain barriers, not to let every little thing in. You know, I can witness something on the street, just some awful little scene on the street. it just be messed up all day. Because of that, I want and I get this rescue fantasy. You know, I wanted to run in and, and rescue these this person from whatever abuse they were taking.
0: You begin the book, Carl, by introducing us to your father, Philip Vito Capitorto, and you introduce us to him through the restaurant he owned here in the Bronx
1: mm-hmm. on White Plains Road, just a couple blocks away from the Pelham Parkway Station, number two train. Yeah, Capi's. Pizza and sandwich shop. Sandwich. Yeah, sandwich. (laughs) Yeah, the motto was we don't spell good, just cook nice. That was the motto. He was very clever, my father. He was a bit of a madman, but he was very, very clever and very talented. He was very artistic. He, you know, the signs were done by hand and they were quite beautiful. He sort of taught himself a kind of calligraphy, like his own variation on calligraphy, but he had a beautiful hand. And he could do illustrations. So he made a very fun set of paperwork and signage connected to the restaurant. Your
0: dad, he had a
1: lot of rules. That's what I was going to say. He did a really, it looked great on paper, the restaurant. And the food was fantastic. But he wasn't that great with the people. That was the problem. He just very opinionated about how you should behave in this place and what was right and what wasn't right. And he didn't tolerate any kind of wavering from that. So he was very fond of
0: throwing people out. You describe him like Ralph Cramden. Get out!
1: Out! (laughs) Well, you know, it's not for nothing that my sisters and I were hooked on the honeymooners... (laughs) Our entire childhood, and I still am. There's something very familiar about Ralph Cramden. But yeah, no, he would throw people out for, you know, various infractions of the rules. And there were many. Give us some examples. Well, there was a giant sign posted at the door about the size of a person with all the rules stated. Rules like no running, no jumping, no yelling, no shouting, no pushing, no shoving, no no bicycles, no roller skates, no strollers, no special orders, no extra cheese. He hated extra cheese. The, the one line just said, this is not a basketball court. No slices at the table and
0: on and on. Yeah, you had to eat your slices at the counter, well, right? This was,
1: that was big. That was a big rule. Because, what was with that? You know... Well, welcome to my world. (laughs) I don't know. But I do know that the shop was divided into two sections. And one half was like a little regular pizza counter. And the other half was a restaurant. There were tables. And you got into each half through a separate door outside. These were two storefronts that sat next to each other. My father joined. But they were joined at the back. At the front, they were two still separate storefronts. So if you came into the pizza counter side, you couldn't order from the restaurant menu and vice versa. So if a little family came in to the restaurant side, and, you know, mother wanted uh, eggplant parmesan and the dad wanted uh, veal parmesan and little junior wanted a slice. Uh, no slices at the table. And my, my father would actually tell these people, sorry, no, no slices at the table. No, he's going to have to go next door. He'll have to exit this little dining room, make a left, go into the next storefront and stand there alone at the counter to eat his slice. Well, of course, the people,
0: you know, would object. And then my father would end up throwing them out. You celebrated your 10th birthday at yeah, Cappy's. Yeah, yeah. And your dad kicked all your friends out. <laughs> well, yeah, well, sure. You, who could blame
1: him? Stephen Morgenthau. Uh, I don't know. I'm using his real name. He'll probably eventually find me and you know, sue me or something. I didn't change his name. But Stephen Morgan thought, yeah, started popping balloons with a plastic fork. And in addition to all the other chaos that a group of 10-year-old boys will work up, uh, that was the final straw. And my father threw them all out. That was horrifying for me, sure.
0: Your family's restaurant had a colorful cast of customers, Uh, and you secretly gave them names, names like the Circus Act. (laughs) Yeah. We did. My sisters and I mainly. My
1: middle sister, Eva, and I were the sort of the ringleaders in this regard. And um, yeah, for whatever reason, there were a lot of really eccentric, in our language at the time, freakish freaks. We just called them freaks. It's another freak coming in here. And just because they were bizarre, they really were bizarre. The Circus Act were a pair of our favorites, you know, seven plus foot man, very kind of gangly and unkempt and sort of not a lot of muscle control. He was sort of lurching around. And his date was this little teeny woman. I mean, she was really like maybe she was four foot two. And together, they were just shocking. And they wouldn't speak much. They wouldn't interact much. But they would come in and order their food. And we would just, for whatever reason, these poor people were just having a little date every week. And we just couldn't get enough. We'd sort of spy my sister and I and, you know, try to figure out what is the deal with these two? Uh, you know, it's you got to entertain yourself. You're in that shop 12, 14 hours a day.
0: Your mom sometimes would give food out for free, and your dad, despite his personality, didn't stop her. Mm, that's true.
1: Yeah, I think he was superstitious about that kind of thing, and he had a you know, real soft spot, my father, for being such a hard man. My mother, there were some regulars who came in who had very limited funds, <laughs> And uh, my mother just wouldn't take their
0: money. She just wouldn't give them a check at the end of the meal. And my father,
1: I remember him objecting, but lightly. For him, very lightly.
0: Music, Carl, as Mm -hmm. we all know, often brings back a lot of memories. Yeah. So I'm going to play a song here, and I want you to hear a little of it, and then talk to us about the kinds of memories it brings back for you. Okay, that's fun. He looked the menu through and through to see what 15 cents could do. That's the Andrews sisters singing One Meatball.
1: Tell us about that song. Fresh as the day it was canned. I mean, that that still sounds good to me. Of course, this is long before my era. I don't want, I want people to understand. I feel like I'm 112 right now. But yeah, that was, um, my mother had the Decca recording of One Meatball and, and we loved it and would play it and, um... Sometimes my father and, and she would even do like a little Lindy Hobb-type dance when we brought it out. But we used it to um, describe another of the bizarre regulars we had, a little a little man who sounded exactly like the hero of that song, One Meatball, little kind of sad sack guy, and he'd come into the restaurant during the weekend. He was always inebriated, I mean, so drunk as to be, I mean, really inebriated. And he never would speak a word. He would just sit there and silently mouth the words of his order or point to them on the menu. And then inevitably, he would end up getting into a huge fight with his imaginary companion. He always had an imaginary companion with him, with whom he'd hold long elaborate conversations in silence just mouthing them and then eventually there'd be a big fight and he would jump up and he'd be raging all in total silence and so my mother god bless her used to look on the bright side and say well at least he thinks he's not alone you know but my sister and i found this just endlessly fascinating again we'd hide find a little hidden perch and just watch the entire thing beginning to end until he finally paid that check and left your dad's relationship with your sister rosette was especially strained it was yeah rosette maybe seven years older than me or something i block out the dates but she's you know older enough than i am that she was a teenager in the 60s so you had you know the psychedelic revolution going on and she was into it you know so i mean no she wasn't particularly wild, but she was a child of the 60s, and she was a rebel, just a natural-born rebel. She was a lot like him, actually. And uh, so, yeah, there were a lot of fireworks that went on there. He got pretty hands-on with her. Yeah, it got really uh, rough, and that part of the book was, you know, the most unpleasant for me to write and the most risky, the riskiest, I think, in terms of, you know, especially my family. I didn't ask them. I didn't clear this with them, as it were. And there's some stuff there that's, you know, that's private and that we've barely even talked about. I was going to ask you
0: that question. Did your family know you were going to write this book? And has anyone objected?
1: Well, you know, they've been pretty great. I must say they've been really great about it. I know how hard It was for them to read a a good chunk of the book. But I think that we have relationships that I think they know they can say that to me. And also they see the spirit in which the book was written. There's no kind of indictment here. Uh, It's written with a lot of love. It's written at a point in my life when I can look back at all this without having to, you know, indict anybody about it.
0: Why did you decide to write it in the first place?
1: Things arrived at the point where it just seemed like that was a set of stories that had to be told now that I've been telling a, around for all of my adult life i worked for many years as a playwright and screenwriter and i mean i've also done some acting but
0: i was thought of myself as a writer first people and, may know you by the way as little Polly on the yeah, sopranos
1: i was little paulie for you know years and, and and i came in on season three of that show and worked until the end Till if i live i'm in the final episode and i'm alive so if there's a movie david
0: if you're listening i am available You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarchi. Our guest this morning is Carl Capitorto. He's the author of Twisted Head, an Italian-American memoir. In 1967, Carl, less than two years after your dad opened Cappy's Restaurant, a nearby movie theater known as the Globe Theater on Pelham Parkway turned porno. Yeah. And your Mm -hmm. dad, he was not happy about it. No. He organized
1: a neighborhood campaign to shut it down. It started with, you know, local priests and rabbis and neighbors banging pots and so on. This uh, grew very quickly into a bigger crusade. And he formed a committee called the Committee to Control Obscenity by Constitutional Means. I still have some of the letterhead. And if you look there, the address is 2259 White Plains Road. Cappy's, Cappy's Pizza and Sanguiche Shop was the national headquarters of the Committee to Control Obscenity by Constitutional Means. And he decided to keep started going up to Albany on a regular basis, lobbying uh, members of the state legislature to support the idea of a, an anti-obscenity ban that he wanted written into the U.S. Constitution.
0: Tell us what he kept at the restaurant to try to get people on board with his campaign. <laughs> he did keep a collection of
1: particularly outrageous porn samples. To prove his point, this idea that free speech would protect something that he found so vile, you know, he figured that this would be a good argument against the idea that porn should be protected by free speech. So if you were an adult male and you came into the restaurant and you said, you know, I'll have a slice and a diet, wait a minute, how do you feel about pornography? And he'd draw these people into it. And it was the late 60s, you know, into the early 70s eventually, and people felt it was a matter of free speech. And they would say, well, you know, I don't have to see that if I don't want to. So it, it's free speech. Oh, yeah, he'd say, well, is this free speech? And he'd flash like the most horrendous, like, you know, porn images involving, you know, uh, nuns and barnyard animals and uh, things that you don't normally see. But then he got his hands on for this purpose. And, or how about this? And he'd <laughs> flash another. And a poor horrified person had just come in for a slice of pizza, you know.
0: Talk about, though, being a rebellious kid. Your dad had this big anti-porn crusade, and you and your friends kept your own soft porn collection buried behind cappies. Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And your dad found it.
1: Yeah. You know, here's a tip. Never share your secrets with your friends. (laughs) There's a tip. If you're a child, especially, you know, you form these little packs with a friend. You got your secret, and then you have a fight. And then your friend uses that secret to try to undo you. So this is what happened, yeah, when uh, my father found me. I dipped into his porn case a lot, which, thank God, he never found out. Uh, But then, yeah, I started my own with a neighbor kid. And and, uh, we had a fight, and he told my father, and he he, he gave him, I don't know how the hell, I still don't know how he managed to direct my father to the exact spot in an empty lot where we had buried it. And my father dragged me out there and dug it up, and, oh, he went mad and dragged me to those kids' It was an insane scene that I write about in the book. Yeah.
0: After you moved from the apartment to the house, your dad started to call you Bub. Yeah. And that was a problem for you. Yeah. Well, I didn't know at first
1: what Bub meant, where that came from. I was like, "What? What's Bub?" I never called me that before. I eventually discovered that Bub was my slave, a name, and that Bub would be my father's sole assistant in this massive task that he decided to undertake which was to rip the house that we were living in that we had just moved into from the one-bedroom apartment into this big old, like, 10-room, 12-room, mock Victorian house a block away. My father decided we would rip it apart while we were living in it. You know, I mean, everything, floors, walls, ceilings, plumbing, electricity, all of it, and rebuild it completely from scratch, basically. Him and me. So, bub was the name that he called me whenever that work was involved you
0: hated doing that work so much that mm-hmm. you actually had the thought of killing your father yeah how do you know that
1: <laughs> i guess i wrote that huh you didn't i didn't do it sure no i didn't <laughs> do it um you know as evidenced by the fact that he lived for, for a very long time after that he died just about 10 years ago But yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm probably not the only kid who who fantasized about,
0: look, I'm getting nervous. I'm knocking over my work. (laughs) (laughs) You found me out. You write in the book that while you're unlike your dad in many ways, you have duplicated some of his deepest patterns. Mm. Which ones? Well, working hard and not smart is one.
1: Um, My father worked harder than anybody I've ever known, but usually he went the toughest way around you could possibly do with any situation that it was. He was going to do it in the hardest possible way. And I think I have a little bit of that. I definitely, I know, have in my own way his stubbornness. I get an idea in my mind or I get a goal in mind and I can become obsessive compulsive about it and, and not listen to reason and not let go even after it's proven that maybe it's not so wise or just not possible. My father was, this word maverick is all in the, <laughs> in the air these days. And uh, my father was, really was a, a maverick. He in many ways does not at all fit the mold of the typical Italian-American father. He had some of those traits. But he was in no way
0: typical anything. He was really his own creation. Did you see any of this while your father was still alive, or did this come to you later on?
1: More later on, but then too. I think I always, not always, but as a young adult, I think, I started to see how creative he was, artistic he was, how much he wanted from life that just was not possible for him to get to. Again... That generation, men and women both, and they're very, very different stories in broad strokes of the men and the women of that generation, the first generation of the wave of immigrants that came over in the early part of this century. They just did not have a whole set of options. They really didn't. It was a very limited set of options. Uh, My father was a Twelve, when his father died suddenly of a rep- ruptured a- appendix and the Great Depression hits, and here he is with his mother, a new immigrant, who speaks pretty much no English. She's got four kids, and it's the Depression. And then you sort of get through that, and it's World War II. And then you come home, and you're like, okay, now I marry and start this family, and you're just a wor- you know, working man trying to support a family. And, you know, the point is that we get all these other options. We have a whole set of options that they just didn't have. And I get gentler and gentler in my thinking about my
0: father. You devote a lot of time in the book to your days in elementary school as well as your days in middle school. Yeah. These were difficult years for you. Yeah. From a very early age, kids called you faggot. Yeah,
1: that's true. Yeah. I remember the first kid saying that to me in kindergarten. I mean, I remember it distinctly because I was like, oh, it was kind of like the first time my father called me bub. And something inside me just said, oh, oh, like, I don't like the sound of that. Like, I know that's not going to be just, you know, one time. So that was the same feeling I had when uh, in kindergarten some kid called me faggot. I just knew, like, oh, boy, this is not going to be good. And it did not stop. It didn't stop.
0: You knew from an early age, though, that you were gay.
1: I did. Well, that made the comment worse because, you know, you figure he's right. That's the worst thing. And, you know, you say, well, but you're in kindergarten. You're six years old. How do you, you do know? You know you're gay from before then. And it's not, obviously, it has nothing to do with sex. You're, you know, long since pre-sexual. I mean, uh, it's something. There's some sense of your otherness. How did your dad find out? How did your parents find out? After my sophomore year in college, I got a job in a little cafe outside Grand Central Station. I met Fred Carl, this guy that would become my spouse, and we'd end up together for 23 years. And... We had this, you know, sort of romance in that uh, summer and fall. And then I moved in to his apartment. He lived in Brooklyn. I moved in there. And that was sort of the obvious coming out. My father freaked out. He disowned me. It was big drama. My mother, I think, just always knew
0: this about me. There were the signs, though. You write about this in the book. Your father found some pornographic material that you had mailed to the house. Naked men. (laughs) It's another bit of
1: advice. If you're a teenager trying to hide your sexual curiosities, don't write away for porn to be delivered to your home. He quickly called the priest. (laughs) He called (laughs) his unofficial spiritual advisor of Trinity Church in New York. So this guy was kind of a big, powerful guy. And my father had befriended him during some of his anti-porn stuff. And, yeah, he called him and I listened in on the um, conversation he was very very upset my father was undone by what he found in the mailbox a catalog from a company called mr g and i don't know what possessed me to have it
0: mailed to the house but i, I was a kid i had no other place to have it you were sure. quick with an excuse though you said well i ordered something from charles atlas didn't have to do with bodybuilding <laughs> it was a very proud
1: moment of, um, of thinking on my feet i was very proud of that Because I did. I had ordered from the Charles Atlas catalog, and I figured that would be a good way to throw him off the scent. But he didn't buy it. I could see that he didn't buy it. He did not attack me. He did not do anything with me directly. He got very quiet and very sullen, and he disappeared into his room and started working the phone. I think he was just mostly deeply disturbed. He oddly didn't confront me at all. He just sort of shut down and went away. It was too horrendous. He was like overload. He could not even react to it.
0: You're writing the book, Carl. That disco changed your life, and one song in particular really (laughs) moved you, and it's this song. I love that you you, (laughs) did this. Yeah. Good. Donna Summer. Love to love you, baby remember the first time you heard that song oh my goodness
1: that's still you know i can instantly get transported uh I, i i think that's a fantastic recording don't get me started i don't remember where or how it came to me i just remember that i stopped in my tracks i just stopped and i was like okay what is that that's something different and i knew a lot of music i was really into music and my middle sister Eva had, was bringing in a lot of soul and funk and sort of pre disco stuff. And Melanie was another one of your. big Melanie, favorites. I had my own folk music favorites, and Melanie was one of them. Yeah, and Seals and Crofts at the time, and Carly Simon and Carole King. But Eva, my sister, would brought in all this funk and, um, like I said, sort of pre disco stuff. So I knew, you know, I knew what I liked, but I knew that when I heard that recording that you just played a snippet of, I had not heard anything like that. Nothing sounded like that before. And so I went to, and I had heard there was some disco, early, early disco. We're talking about this is the birth of it. So, but there were a couple of examples, of course, before this. Nothing, though, sounded like this. And I came, I got on the number 12 bus right here, uh, we're outside your studio, and uh, from my house to the Alexander's up at the top of Fordham Road there, and I bought the album, and I came home, and I played it, and played it, and played it, and it was long. I forget how long. It's like 12 or 15 minutes long. And I just thought this was the deepest thing i had ever heard i just loved it and i still do i became a, a devoted fan of disco
0: the son of sam david berkowitz mm-hmm. figures prominently into your memories of growing up in the bronx he actually yeah. killed two of your friends
1: yeah he did valentina suriani and alex S. L. Uh, yeah mm-hmm. it was horrible uh horrible time i still get very very sad when i think about it i think about it a lot these days because she's in the book and, you know, it's funny how certain things don't ever leave you. You know, there are just certain things that hit you so hard when they happen that they just don't leave. When you go to that file in your brain, it all comes up. We weren't even calling him son of Sam yet. He was just known as the 44 caliber killer because he it was very early. I think they were like I think Bal and Alex were like his second and third victims. Yeah, that was a terrifying time in the Bronx.
0: We talked earlier about how you hated so much to work on your home with your dad, Mm -hmm. doing that renovation work. So you decided to take a job to get away from it. Mm -hmm. And your boss was the founder of the Guardian Angels, Curtis Lewa. He was. And I'm still waiting for someone to pluck this detail
1: out of the book, so I'm glad you bring it up. Oh, I'm going to pluck this detail out of the book.
0: (laughs) Curtis Lewa officiated over a gay wedding.
1: It's true. That's exactly right. Tell us that story. He was the mock presiding minister at a gay wedding of two of our coworkers. Well, one of them was a coworker, and the other was his boyfriend. This guy Ralph, who was the you know my first, the first like truly mincing queen I had ever met, like you know proudly mincing queen, and I was fascinated by him because he used the pronoun she in reference to men. This very much confused me, but, you know, I was trying to hang with it. I was trying to understand what his world was all about. And he told me, Ralph told me, oh, yes. He said, you know, me and my boyfriend, Vinny, she and me is going to get married. And Curtis is going to do the service. It's like, okay, you know, I'm not sure what all this means, but okay. And then we went, the full staff, the closing staff. We worked the midnight shift, six to closing. We all went to his the community room of his project building one Saturday afternoon. And yeah, Ralph and Vinnie were married. Curtis Slewa did the honors.
0: Who would have thunk? Especially you know? today, he's, what, a conservative talk show host, yeah. right?
1: He's pretty right-wing, Curtis, yeah. I don't know how we would feel about this. I don't know if he has a stand. I wish somebody would look into this. I, does he have a stand? I don't know if he has a stand on gay marriage. I don't know. Like a, but since that's a hot issue, it would be funny to know if... I would love to catch him talking against it. That's all I can say. And then bring up this little uh, tidbit. I'd love to hear him coming out against gay marriage. And then remind him... Um, You performed a wedding ceremony about 30 plus years ago in the Bronx. He was cool, Curtis. He worked us very hard, but he was very, he was cool with us. And like with Ralph, I admired the fact that Curtis would protect Ralph. This McDonald's up here in those years, in the 70s, it was rough. People would come in there ready for, you know, ready to, I don't know, fight. Everybody wanted to fight with the staff. I don't know what that problem was. And, you know, people would very easily um, be tempted to pick on Ralph. Because there he was. It was, again, you got to remember, it's 75 or whatever it is. It's not something you see all the time. A proudly mincing queen behind the counter. And Curtis would tolerate no kind of abuse of
0: Ralph, which I admired. Yeah, in that regard, I guess it's no surprise that he went on to found the Guardian Angels yeah. to protect people of New York yeah. City. Yeah, yeah. And he did have this,
1: uh, you, you know, you felt very much like uh, when you were... Uh, uh, team member of his, that he w- you know, that he would protect you, that he had your back. He worked you very hard. But I-, I liked him a lot as a manager. He formed a nice sense of community there. I don't know that I would trust him as the head of a paramilitary
0: organization. <laughs> But, my own experience with him, I enjoyed you said that you 've performed some of the stories in this book on stage. Would you like to see Twisted Head become a movie i would who would play you <laughs> That's, well, They always ask that question Who would you want to play you yeah, in the movie I, version of Twisted head well luckily it it's, it's uh, you know i 'm so young
1: in the story that it would have to be you, you'd got to get you'd have to get a kid uh, to for the early parts and then at some point a teenager. How about and
0: this, your dad? Who would play your dad? Yeah, you know,
1: there are a couple of people who would be really good. I hesitate to say their names because they're friends of mine. And, and I'm still just thinking about it.
0: I was going to say Jackie Gleason is no uh, longer available. <laughs>
1: too bad, huh? He would be... Yeah, he and, he, he actually and Audrey Meadows together. They, <laughs> But in the absence of Jackie Gleason, I have a couple of other thoughts
0: I do for, um, you know, the mother character. But who knows? You know, who knows? How is your mom doing, by the way? She sounds like such a sweet woman. There was a line at the end of your book, after your dad died, she called you up to tell you that your dad had passed, and you had said, I'll be right over. And she what? said, oh, no, it's late. You're tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very
1: typical, my mom. Yeah. Yeah, by the way, we were practically in the car already by the time she was saying that. But, yeah. No, she's, she, God bless her, she's doing well. She'll be 85. Is she um, still in the Bronx? Yeah, she's still in the Bronx. She'll be, uh, like I say, she'll have her 85th birthday just like, well, two days after my 50th. We were born two days apart.
0: And has she read the book cover to cover? She has. It took a while. It
1: took a while. But she did read it. And I told her she did not have to. You know, she kept saying, I want to. I'm afraid. I don't want to. But I want to. I said, Ma, you really don't have to. I'll summarize it for you. No, no, no. I want to read it. And finally, she did. A few weeks ago, she read it. But she was horrified
0: by a number of things. Yeah. Carl, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, Thanks for having me. Carl Capitorto's book, Twisted Hit, an Italian-American memoir, is out now from Broadway Books. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Have a great weekend.